before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. How united is Italy? Why did it take 1400 years after the end of the Roman Empire for Italy to unite as one country? And how strong is Italian national unity now? In this podcast, Professor Jeremy Black, author of A Brief History of Italy, talks to The Critic's political editor, Graeme Stewart, about Italian identity, regionalism and state building. Professor Black, we think now of Italy as very much a unified country, even if many Italians might themselves beg to differ. But the Romans managed to unite all of Italy, and then for the next 1,400 years, Italy was disunited. Why did it take so long for Italy to unite as one country? Well, that's a fascinating question, because one of the problems we always have is to assume that what's known as teleology. We know where we're going, so it should have been obvious to them that they should have got that far. Um, If you turn it on its head and say the period of Roman rule was a relatively brief period, an important period, but a relatively brief period, and as you correctly say, it was followed by, in fact, um, 1,400 years of, uh, of uh, different territories uh, in Italy, nearly 1,500 years. So maybe one could argue that that in part was the norm, and then maybe instead of seeing it as a cause of, quote, Italian, quote, failure, we could, carrying forward what we were talking about last week when we were talking about the Mediterranean, we could try and put it in a broader European context. After all, um, what we call Germany uh, was only united uh, in the late 19th century and was then disunited um, again from um, uh, after World War II. And uh, many states which we would now see as, in some ways, and they would present themselves as having a long-term uh, identity, uh, whether you're thinking of Finland or Norway, um, Czechoslovakia, Romania, are in fact relatively recent arrivals. And a near parallel with Italy would be, I suppose, Spain, but also in a way Britain. Um, Spain, uh, what we call Spain, Iberia, was united under the Romans, and um, that unity subsequently was to be uh, precarious. Um, And in the case of Britain, it again was united under the Romans, or England, Wales, and the southernmost part of Scotland was. And after the the Romans went, again, that was to uh, take a long time to recur. So maybe the Italians should be seen not as following a unique path of disunity and failure, but a more common one of having a sense of a cultural identity, but not a political cohesion to go with that. You write in your brief history of Italy that um, the geography was highly unfavourable for cohesion, uh, a situation that remains the case. Uh, I was intrigued by that because, I mean, one thing of Italy is, you know, this long boot uh, and then at the top of which it's got the Alps, which were almost impenetrable uh, until the the 18th century, um, late 18th century at that. 
In what way was was the geography not uh, conducive towards unification? Well, that's a really good question. Well, first of all, um, land links. I mean, if you were to go from Calabria down the bottom or Apulia uh, to, let's say, Lombardy or Piedmont by land, you would have had a really difficult journey. You would have uh, had a lot of uh, valleys to cross, you would have had the problems of the Apennines. The easiest way to travel was, of course, to go by sea, either the Tyrrhenian Sea to the west of Italy or the Adriatic to the east. And, of course, from that point of view, in Apulia or Calabria, you're closer to the Byzantine Empire in modern-day Greece, uh, or, or in southern Italy, you're co- closer to the Aragonese Empire based in, uh, you know, in eastern Spain than you were to northern Italy. So, Land, I think, is a real problem. And that doesn't really change till you can use high explosives um, to uh, help you get through uh, mountains, you know, knock your way through for railway tunnels first and subsequently for road tunnels. And in many senses, the, as I discuss in the book, uh, I mean, the Autostrada del Sol is, is, is in many senses um, the, uh, the, you know, the first really effective. I mean, obviously, the Romans have had roads going up and down. But in terms of moving freight uh, long distances, the Romans used water as well. Uh, Rome was essentially supplied by, with grain, from, as we were discussing last time, from Sicily, by, by sea, not by land. Um, so, you know, there are enormous problems. And let me make this clear. This is not just a problem for Italy. Um, in terms of, you know, you might think of France as an obvious unit. But to go from uh, Marseille to uh, Paris um, in, shall we say, 1600, uh, was a formidable undertaking. And then if you were to look at, uh, at Germany, uh, what we call Germany, to go from, say, Fussen to Kiel, a major undertaking. But Italy, there are particular problems to do with the topography. The mountains are much more serious an issue. And, you know, as you may know, I did a book on Italy and the Grand Tour. And the accounts of British tourists the problem of crossing the Apennines between Bologna and Florence, which was a major route. We're not talking about, you know, um, the, you know the, the edge of the world, a major route. And the problems they encountered in the 18th century uh, are, are really quite instructive. I, I want to, in the interest of time, pass over some of the early centuries after the collapse of the Roman Empire. Uh, it suffice to say, different barbarian tribes, the Lombards in the north, uh, that you have uh, the, the Moorish uh, invasions and occupations in Sicily and in, in southern Italy, the, the, the uh, Normans uh, come, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and then we move forward to a period in the, in the later Middle Ages and early period of the Renaissance where the, the states of Italy are being fought over in these Italian wars, fought over primarily uh, between... Uh, the Kingdom of France and and the Spanish. Um, uh, in that that way, it strikes me that that Italy's fragmentation in, into multiple states is rather different 
from Germany's experience in the sense that um, the, the multiplicity of German states were, were nevertheless German, German-speaking, German princes, uh, uh, and so on. I, in Italy, you have a situation of, of occupation by other European forces. What, what effect did that have on a sense of Italian identity? Did the people living there start to think of themselves uh, not just as subjects of, of uh, Bourbon or Habsburg rule, but did, did they begin to think of themselves as, as French um, or, or, or Spanish? Or did they always uh, see themselves as, um, as their regional Italian identity and being oppressed by foreigners? Well, that's again a fantastic question, which wraps up a whole host of things, which again are relevant for our present day discussion of things like the nature of the British Empire. Let's start. We always have to be careful of anticipating a notion of nationalism and particularly democratic nationalism. And that's as, as relevant for, you know, for areas such as modern day India, as you might say, for, for Italy. Number two, um, Elites and others could accommodate themselves very readily to being ruled by those whom you might term foreign, because they didn't quite see it in those were in those terms. So, in other words, um, a um, a uh, a ruler who might be regarded as uh, king of Spain in what we call Spain could also be king of Naples um, in southern Italy. In other words, you would have what was known in the jargon as multiple kingship. And the Neapolitan aristocracy could find profit and prerogative in his service. Um, and indeed, and there's a very good book by Gregory Hanlon on how the Italian aristocracy in the 17th and 18th century in particular adapted to military service under the Austrian Habsburgs. Uh, prior to that, many of them had served under the, including the 17th century, under the Spanish Habsburgs. It's not an incompatible thing, and it's part question of what one would call multiple identity. And funnily enough, although I am not an exponent uh, of its historical mythos, uh, you can see the same thing with the modern European Union, which is trying to have the idea of multiple identities. I, in other words, you're a uh, inhabitant of Florence, you're a Tuscan in the region of, you're an Italian, and you're a European. Now, as we know, that um, ha that itself can be a tense and difficult relationship, and as we itself have, have seen in the British Isles. Um, but I think it's reasonable to say that one shouldn't imagine that if you are ruled by those who later are called foreigners, that therefore you are feeling occupied. That's very much a later interpretation, which doesn't make sense of the way in which, in fact, the Romans incorporated Italy into their system, just as the British incorporated India into their system. It doesn't make, it doesn't make sense. And as far as Germany is concerned, it's very interesting. Later nationalists, so if you're looking at late 19th century, early 20th century German nationalists, if you're looking at Italian nationalists of the period, they were very critical of these centuries of what they called foreign rule. So German nationalists argued that historically German cities such as Metz or Strasbourg had been taken over by the French because Germany was divided and Germany was weak. And the Italians, you know, made similar arguments. That is very much a late 19th and early 20th century view. It was not a view that would have made much sense to most people, 
I'm not talking about everybody, to most people in the period we're talking about. One thing that strikes me reading your book is the importance as a prize that Milan uh, presents uh, to the, uh, um, the, the, the French and Spanish forces and uh, Milan uh, changes um, changes rule many times uh, o over this period. What, what in particular? Uh, I mean, we, we're before the age of fashion and motor cars. So, so what in particular made Milan such a prize? Well, Lombardy or the Milanese was an area of advanced agriculture. It was also an area of quite sophisticated industrial production, textiles, for example. Um, and this was a prosperous part of Italy. And also, it was an accessible part. If you were invading Italy from the north, from the Habsburg lands, or you were invading from the northwest, from France, the Milanese is an area where you can get to. It's an area where you can support your troops. And it's an area in which there are a variety of territorial claims. Whereas there are other areas of Italy which are economically prosperous, but they're not always so immediately accessible. Um, and that, that, is, you know, that is important if you're trying to support your forces. Um, how significant is Napoleon's conquest as a first move towards unification, thinking particularly in terms of the, his dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire and also the effects that his um, various invasions of, of Italy had on, on a sense of identity there? Well, again, this is a very interesting question, and um, interpretations change. I mean, I think it's fair to say that you would find scholars today offering more than one interpretation, but let me give you how I see it. 20 years ago, 25 years ago, the view would have been, on the whole, in accordance with what you might call the liberal Italian mythos. Napoleon, a good person, uh, the Kingdom of Italy under the French Aegis, a, on the whole, good progressive force. Unfortunately, this fails because of counter-revolution, uh, which leads to uh, Austrian dominance of the Milanese and the Veneto, uh, and in fact of northern and central Italy, Italy uh, indirectly, um, uh, um, as a whole and after 1814, and that that is what has to be overcome. And that would have been, I think it's fair to say, the general view. Now you've got um, scholarship, I mean, there was always some scholarship of this type, but it's more prominent now saying, well, look, um, the French rule in Italy was brutal. Um, Napoleon, you mentioned, uh, brutally suppressed uh, uh, peasant and local uprisings. Um, it was enforced um, with uh, harshness and expropriation. Uh, it did benefit a small cadre of self-styled progressives Italians. Maybe one should see them as progressives. That's a matter of opinion, which you can discuss, uh, particularly secularists. Um, but the, um, as it were, the counter-revolution was more popular and better grounded than one might allow for. So you've got these different interpretations which are quite significant for how you look at later Italian history. And of course, there are all sorts of problems here because, you know, I mean, nobody's going to say that I'm, a, an, you know, I'm, not, I'm not personally religious, but I do not think you can argue um, uh, about early 19th century, late 18th century without accepting that for a large number of people, religious commitment and religious devotion was very important to them. So the destruction, expropriation 
of religious sites was part of the attack on an old order that was very unpopular. And indeed, I also another point is, you know, large numbers of Italians were forcibly, um, as it were, taken into French or French allied units, uh, fighting in places like Spain and Russia, again, and, and Germany, this is not popular. So, you know, there are the arguments now that in many senses, the Napoleonic regime and before it, the regime of the French Revolution was unpopular, that those people who used to suggest that it was popular were arguing very much in terms of what was their self-interest, in terms of their attempt to create a backstory, and that we ought to be very cautious about the notion that Napoleon uh, helped to create a credible uh, nationalist rhetoric for Italy. I'm very intrigued to think of uh, life in, uh, in Italy in the first half of the 19th century before its unification. So uh, were the, the uh, academic and the elite writing and talking in Latin whilst everyone else spoke a vernacular tongue or um, how different were the various different Italian vernaculars from one another? Could someone from Milan understand someone from Rome? Could someone from Rome understand uh, someone from uh, the, the south of the country? Well, first of all, there's a difference between the clerical elite and the secular elite. The clerical elite had to know Latin and had to be able to operate in it. Um, the secular elite didn't. Um, the... Um, as far as uh, the situation, as you put it, at the vernacular, I'd say the parallel is with Germany. Um, the, shall we say, the spoken German and the spoken Italian uh, was much more uh, varied than uh, the published. So it's really a question of what level you're operating at. Obviously, many people are illiterate, and that's not a criticism, that was true more generally in the world in the early 19th century, and if you're illiterate and you've essentially spent most of your time in your local community, you will speak with a local patois, and you may in fact, not don't worry about people 500 miles not being able to understand you, you might be difficult to understand some people from 100 miles away. Um, and this process would be encouraged by marriages within extended kingship groups, marriages within villages, etc., etc. So, um, but if you are looking at people that had uh, gone away from home for profit or uh, career or whatever or education, then the situation is rather different. I mean, if you're going from Apulia or Calabria to Naples to pursue your career in 1830, then you're going to have to be understood there. Let this strong sense of place, though, is still the case. I mean, several years ago, I gave a set of lectures um, uh, for a branch of the University of Naples too, and I remember. Uh, they referred to me, me, me to their foreigner. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. I wonder where their foreigner comes from. And their foreigner came from Rome. Everybody else in the department came from Naples. The foreigner came from Rome. And so that a strong sense of locality has always been, I think, part of um, the Italian uh, feeling. But let me be clear about this. You know, th this may seem ridiculous to you. Um, I spent many years working uh, in the Northeast, and I can tell you that there is a very strong sense of locality in uh, Northeastern cities, um, say Newcastle as opposed to Sunderland, 
and um, we shouldn't imagine. I mean, you know, I mean, at the moment, as you are aware, there is this discussion as to whether there's a culture war and metropolitan bubbles and all the rest of it. Um, to a considerable extent, that is true um, and is more the case when you look at a lot of continental European culture than people possibly in Britain understand. Even to this day, most people go to the local university, they pursue their career locally, uh, they get married locally, and they often speak very much in, in terms of dialect words, intonation, which is very distinctive to that area. I want to turn to the Risorgimento and uh, which begins to really gather political momentum in the 1850s and is achieved during the 1860s. Um, what inspired Cavour and the other unifiers of the period to push for uh, a single uh, Italy, a kingdom of Italy, as, as it was to be styled? Why did it happen then, and what were the motivations? Were, were there was there an economic pull for it, or must we see it primarily in terms of the uh, of the political ambition of Piedmont? Well, let's be inconvenient and and throw in that there is one enormous parallel in the case of uh, Italy with the United States, and that is that French intervention played a crucial role in in the success of independence. So, just as the United States. Um, uh, particularly French naval intervention during the uh, War of American Independence was very, very significant. So in the case of Italy, Napoleon III's intervention was absolutely crucial because, as you all know, uh, the previous conflicts between the Piedmontese and the Austrians, the Piedmontese had lost. Um, so if you're looking for a really pretty abrupt change, it is external influence. And then, of course, um, the... Uh, great power uh, relationship uh, becomes important. I mean, the Italians then, of uh, as you know, in the 1860s, benefit uh, then from fighting in you know 1866 from fighting Austria in that case, an alliance with uh, with Prussia. Uh, the Italians don't do brilliantly well, but because the Prussians uh, do very well against the Austrians, the the um, the uh, Piedmontese gain get more territory, and in 1870, uh, when Napoleon III withdraws his troops from Rome in order to concentrate on fighting Prussia in the Franco-Prussian War, then the Italians use the opportunity to take over Rome. So the exploitation of great power relationships is very important to. Uh, the Risorgimento and to its subsequent course. And as you know, if you were an Italian nationalist, you would have argued in the early 20th century that the Risorgimento was incomplete and that that was why in 1915 you have to go to war with Austria. And that's why out of the peace treaty at the end of the war, you get um, uh, Trieste and you get Istria and you get the Trentino. So there is this notion that uh, Italy has a deserved destiny, but that you need to exploit opportunity to get there. Now, the reality is that um, not everybody agreed. And as you will know, um, a process of conquest and both civil conflict and conquest could be seen 
um, in the Risorgimento in Sicily and in southern Italy. Um, and of course, that looks towards the later ambivalence there about the new Italian state. And I mentioned the war in 1866. Many southerners did not want to get involved. They didn't see it as their war. They didn't see why they should have to go and fight the Austrians. Um, so a sense of uh, you know, nationalism, whatever term you wish to use, is more precarious, more ambivalent, more dependent on political circumstances at the time, which is exactly what you would expect. I mean, and let me make a general political point here. Um, history is about hard work. It's about understanding the specific circumstances, political, economic, social and cultural, in which developments occur and people make choices. Unfortunately, at the present moment, there is a lazy and sloppy approach to history, um, essentially discussing it in terms of discourses um, and with a, a notion of a clear-cut um, uh, route, um, a kind of progressivism, if you wish to use that term. Um, and that is very unhelpful in seeking to understand the past. So, you know, I have no brief for, for Austrian rule in the Milanese or for Bourbon rule in Naples. I'm not saying all of this in order to argue against what happened because I have some sort of uh, personal stake. And unfortunately, all too many people will throw that in your face if they can. Um, what I'm trying to do is to make people appreciate, and I try to do that in the book, that the path of history is not clear, and that is significant for the past and significant for the present. One thing that, that strikes me very forcefully is that the unification of Italy um, was economically damaging for, for Sicily and southern Italy in the uh, decades after their absorption into Italy. Uh, the rates of emigration from the south are extraordinary. And here we are now in, in 2020, and there is still this great economic divide between uh, a much more prosperous north and a much less prosperous south. Can one say that that is just the, the nature of things and there are different cultural approaches which have, have led to this inevitable division? Or should one see this as related to the unification of Italy in the way in which the, the, it's seen as almost like the North taking over the South, but in a way that suited the North rather than the South? Well, again, that's an excellent question. First of all, the question of the divide between the two parts of Italy is one that has vexed contemporary commentators and historians for centuries. And indeed, there are scholars who have argued that one can already see aspects of this in the later medieval period, or more particularly in the early modern period. So it's not new to um, uh, the 1860s and 1870s. And again, I mentioned travellers. Travellers were very clear about their distinct, the distinctions between different parts of Italy. But having said that, I don't think there's any doubt that the economic policies followed by the new uh, Italian state were detrimental to the South. In particular, uh, free flow of food was a real problem uh, in knocking out a lot of southern uh, the economic viability of southern agriculture. But of course, you then have to put that in its wider context and say, yes, 
um, you know, uh, free markets don't always work to the advantage of people who have uh, particular dis uh, disadvantages. But in the case of the late 19th century, the challenge was not just from northern Italy. The challenge was also, um, and we have a great agricultural depression in Britain, the challenge is also from New World uh, grain, uh, beef, mutton, lamb, from you know the Americas, uh, from Australasia. Um, and so that there are practical problems for, for southern agriculture. But um, I think it's reasonable to say that the voice of the South was one that was not particularly significant in late 19th and early 20th century Italy. And um, in part, I mean, you asked the question about cultural, and, you know, we discussed these issues last time briefly when we were talking about the Mediterranean. I mean, liberal, in, liberal commentators argued that these were backward societies, that they were over dom, overly dominated by the church, that education was not emphasized sufficiently, um, and they sort of presented them in the kind of racism that was quite common in that period as a sort of extension of Africa. Um, the, I think it's fair to say that the situation was more, much more complex and um, if you know and if you knew then uh, southern Italy, you will know that there was, I was in Sicily for several weeks earlier this year, there is an extraordinary diversity even within a 50-mile radius in terms of political culture, attitudes, uh, economic activity, and so on. So the idea that the whole of the South is in decline is one that I don't think is very helpful. But I certainly, don't, in my view, do not think that Italy has worked brilliantly always for its constituent parts. And we shouldn't be surprised about this. I mean, again, you know, go back to the debate in Britain. People, some people listening to this will be Remainers, some will be Brexiteers. I think that, you know, whatever people's personal views are uh, on this matter, I think most people can understand that membership in the European Union was more attractive for some parts of the British Isles than for other parts of the British Isles. And um, you shouldn't be surprised to find the same thing was true of a, of a, of a system like Italy. We're discussing this at a time when uh, newspapers are full of the possibility of the United Kingdom breaking up. Um, there have been strong movements like the, the Lombard League and so on, which are very supportive of the North. But is it realistic to think that, that Italy might break up um, in all or, or in part? Or is that really un unthinkable? And, and if it is unthinkable, what has um, modern Italy done right that, that the UK appears to be struggling to, to do right? Well, again, you are, Graham, you are brilliant. You put in a whole host of things there. Now, a Scottish, I'm not a Scottish nationalist. A Scottish nationalist would not say that Scotland becoming independent is wrong. I mean, uh, you know, so, so I think one's got to have all sorts of things. First of all, Padania, which is the invented country of the Northern League, doesn't have the uh, institutional um, coherence and continuity that you can depict in the case of Scotland. So although you are absolutely right, a lot of northern Italians feel that the South is, is an incubus. A lot of southerners feel that they are 
misused and despised by malign um, people in the north. There is a more general sense in many parts of Italy that the national government, governmental process and government is corrupt. And I think it's fair to say that uh, the uh, Christian Democrats, the socialists under Craxi, and the Berlusconi government didn't do anything much to convince most Italians about the integrity of their governmental system. Uh, that's a nice remark, isn't it? I mean, I think that keeps me on this side of slander. Um, but given that that is the case, I wouldn't say that the Italians have necessarily succeeded. What I would say is they're used to this notion of what we talked about earlier, which is multiple identity. You might have a strong sense of yourself as living in Emilia-Romagna or, you know, or having a strong sense of yourself in a particular city um, and also be quite happy to talk about Italy in vague sense, but know that the chance of you particularly identifying with or meeting maybe somebody in, from Sicily is going to be relatively modest. Uh, and, you know, Italians will often, I mean, I remember I spent a long time in 1979 with, in working in Achivio in Turin. And I remember the archivist saying to me, you know, he said, oh, we've had southerners living in, in Turin lately. You can see it. They go through red lights, etc., etc. And it was, you know, it was a strong sense of a different identity. But that didn't mean that he felt that uh, Naples or Sicily ought to be in another country. Now, the difference in Scotland is that due to, um, shall we say, a measure of rather brilliant duplicity by the SNP leadership, I don't think there's any doubt that there's both duplicity but also tactical adroitness, due to the fact that they take large sums of money from the British Exchequer, mostly, obviously, in other words, from England, but are able to claim all the credit for it themselves to their electors, giving that the chip-on-the-shoulder mentality seems to enjoy great traction there. And a lot of this is to do with political uh, tactics. I mean, the ironic thing is that um, Italy has been united in a, as a state for a much more shorter period than uh, than Britain, um, that uh, in the case of Scotland, um, you know, the Union of the uh, 1707 is what you're really looking back to, and yet the Scottish nationalists have brilliantly success, succeeded in creating this narrative that they are all being done, they are being done harshly. Now we could have a separate program, as you know, I've written a book on Britain since 1945 in which I've tried to address some of these issues. We could have a separate programme about this, but Scottish nationalism has been very successful. Um, what is interesting increasingly is the extent to which that although British government does not wish to see Scotland become independent, more opinion in England is now disinclined to accept many of the consequences. So at the moment, with cost of money low and people printing money as if it didn't mean anything, the big cross-subsidy to Scotland seems to be acceptable. But I imagine at some stage in the future that might not be quite so, quite so happy a, a, a situation, but I don't know. But I would say Scotland is much more likely to become independent than, than either northern or southern Italy. So, at least in that sense, um, Italy is, is a successful 
creation which we expect to endure. Uh, we could go on, but we must leave it there, I'm, I'm afraid. Professor Jeremy Black, author of A Brief History of Italy, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Graham. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.